Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And today we have a very special guest. Cunning Minx is her name, and she has been the uh, she was the actual creator, and and she's the host of the Polyamory Weekly podcast, which now has over 500 episodes. And the podcast shares tales from the front, the front lines of responsible non-monogamy from a pansexual and kink-friendly point of view. So welcome to the show, Cunning. Thanks for having me, Sumati. So glad you're here. And boy, I've got a lot of questions to ask you, but why don't we start with <laughs> your poly origin story? Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well... I'd always thought that poly was a good idea. I just didn't have a word for it. So I'm, I, I probably am not the only kid that would fantasize about, you know, meeting Prince Charming who would whisk me off to Paris and I'd live the glamorous life. And then I would meet another fabulous artist in Paris. And I could never quite figure out how to make those uh, storylines live happily ever after since there was no model for that. Um, but in practical <laughs> terms... I uh, I really tried polyamory when basically I just fell head over heels in love with a guy who was poly. I met him in a friend's kitchen, and uh, we started chatting online, and he uh, confided to me uh, a little bit later that he and his fiance were polyamorous. And I said, well, oh, you know, that's, that's weird. That's not for me, just so you know. Not interested. But, you know, you're an interesting person, so I'll keep chatting with you, but you know, ixnay on the poly A. And, you know, through this <laughs> online chatting, we really just fell just stupid, ridiculously in love. And, you know, thus began my poly adventure and um, made a lot of mistakes. And, oh, my gosh, so much drama in the first, it was more than the first year, probably the first two full years was like drama, drama, drama. I mean, I think I was spending 40 hours a week on relationship maintenance and like 10 hours a week on my actual job. I mean, it was a little wow. crazy. Yeah. But well, we were together the, for... That is the critique. Sorry to interrupt you. That is the critique that uh, polyam... One of the critiques polyamory or open relationship often gets is that there's so much processing. So um, I, I don't want to interrupt your story. I want to hear more. But at some point I'd like to hear, you know, have you learned some shortcuts to teach other people so they don't have to spend 40 hours a week. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely, because I no longer have 40 hours a week. But frankly, the first poly relationship does involve a lot of experience shock and a lot of processing of things that in a monogamous relationship, it's pretty easy to sweep under the rug and the light may never shine on them. And so you don't have to deal with them. But you know, open relationships and polyamory and other brands of non-monogamy tend to have a way of shining a spotlight on all those little parts of your personality and relationship and communication that, you know, can typically stay hidden when you're in a traditional monogamous relationship. Uh, but at any rate, um, we fell madly in love. There was so much drama, but we actually did end up staying together for five years and, uh, you know, it was uh, an amazing learning experience. I'm so glad that I had it. I'm so glad uh, that he loved me the way that he loved me. It was, you know, my life would have been 
totally different without that amazing experience. And after about five years, Mm -hmm. uh, it became clear that it just really wasn't working. We wanted different types of polyamory. His wife definitely wanted a very different type of polyamory. And, you know, after five years, I realized it was okay to say, you know, we love each other and we're, you know, we're all poly, but we all want to do this in a different way. And, you know, it's just not compatible. So um, that was the first experience. <laughs> and I'm, so I'm can very I ask you a happily... couple of questions about that before you move on with your story? Sure, totally. That's pretty much the origin story. Okay, great, great. Okay, so um, you talked about how open relationship, um, you know, creates situations where you're kind of digging deep into your issues. So would would you say or do you believe that open relationship is really good for our emotional and spiritual evolution? I wouldn't disagree with that in my case. Now, there may certainly be some cases where um, – people have uh, some trauma or they have really bad experiences and it actually doesn't, it actually makes things worse. So I I always want to give a little room for individuality and understand that, you know, people have different experiences with polyamory. So your experience may be different from mine, but I do feel that because there is a very strong and continuous need to communicate openly One of the things that I've learned as I've been podcasting and teaching classes on polyamory for the last 12 years is that there is absolutely nothing, zero, that I teach that is unique to polyamory. It's just about good, healthy relationships. 50% of my audience self-identifies as monogamous. These are good relationship and communication skills for everyone to have. It's just that, you know, sometimes you can get away with not working on it too hard. (laughs) Did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely, because we can't impose, you know, for example, somebody might have a certain type of PTSD that gets triggered from open relationship and that's just not healthy for them, whereas somebody else might think, you know, I love how polyamory really makes me grow and challenges me to um, get past my old programming. So it's really an individual choice. Um, And you, you used a phrase called experience shock. Can you tell me what that means? Yeah, that's a phrase coined by my partner, Lusty Guy, who uses it to describe that situation when you're all educated and prepared and you've read all the books and you've done all the talking and you do the thing that you think you're going to be totally and awesomely cool with, whatever the thing is, with whether it's your partner going out on a date, whether it's going to a sex party and you know watching your, your partner interact sexually with somebody else, um, or whether it's just, I don't know, watching your partner hold somebody else's hand, whatever the experience is, you think you're all cool with it. And then the thing actually happens and you react in a totally different way. And that's called Mm -hmm. experience shock. That's what we call experience Mm -hmm. shock because the truth is, you know, we don't know what part of our psychology is going to be kicked off by an experience. So we give people permission, you know, we, we encourage people to let them know that, you know, this is going to happen to you. You're going to think that you're totally okay with something and then the thing will happen and you'll freak out and then you'll think you're a bad poly person and that you should be better and what's wrong with you. And I would, this is where we encourage people just to stop shooting all over yourself. Give yourself permission to not be 100% omniscient and know exactly how you would react 
in a situation that you've never been in before. <laughs> it happens mm-hmm. to the best of us. It doesn't make you a bad person. You just got to work through it, talk through it with yourself, talk through it with your partner, your metamor, anyone involved, and it will be fine. Right. Yeah, most of my listeners and my clients are new to open relationship, but um, I know that as I got farther along, I should, you said should on yourself. I used to should on myself a lot <laughs> where I wanted to be more far, farther along or more evolved than I really was. And I was very judgmental of when I still got triggered by things and I had to learn to accept that yeah. and just let it be okay. And Yeah, it's a, it's a practice of self-love, isn't it? Exactly. It doesn't make you a bad poly person or a liar or or, or untruthful to think that you're going to be okay with an experience and then when it actually comes that you are you have some type of negative emotion fear jealousy envy whatever it may be that's okay it doesn't make you a bad person it doesn't make you a bad poly person it just makes you human and just to congratulate ourselves for trying (laughs) for trying something new outside our comfort zone yeah Exactly. And instead of clamping down on that and saying, okay, well, let's just never be in that situation ever again, of maybe exploring and saying, you know, why did I have this reaction? What does this make me think of? Is this triggering an old event? Is it triggering an old trauma? You know, kind of take that as an opportunity to dig down and figure out what insecurity is surfacing and what you might be able to do about it. You know, frankly, a lot of Mm -hmm. times it's it's simply – Uh, You know, it's simply a a little bit of insecurity and a little bit of self-care, as you say, or just, you know, having the opportunity to contact your partner and say, by the way, I'm freaking out. I'm going to be okay, but just so you know, I'm freaking out a little bit right now. (laughs) And then giving your partner or your metamor the opportunity to either do something right then and there or to give you some encouragement or whatever. But in the end, dealing with those types of situations gives you more tools in your self-care toolbox. Mm-hmm, right. Now, I like that you mentioned or talking to your metamor. So um, we often think we have to talk to our partner or our friends, but we can actually go and talk directly to the metamor. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give me an example or two of when you've had to go to your metamor to um, resolve something that was up for you? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if anybody listening doesn't know what a metamor is, it is your partner's partner with whom you are not necessarily romantically or sexually involved. So, for example, Mm -hmm. I am romantically and sexually involved with Lusty Guy, and his wife, Elle, is a wonderful person, but I don't actually have what I would call a romantic or sexual relationship with her. We are very good friends. And so she, I consider her my metamor. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of situations that happened early on that I could bring up, but I'm going to share one that happened more recently um, that is a little bit, probably a little bit heavy, but it's, you know, it was fairly recent, so I'm going to share that. So Mm -hmm. Lusty Guy's grandmother recently passed away, and she was the primary, she was, um, she was a mother to him, basically. He credits her with things like, you know, she she is the only reason that he is not in jail. Um, and uh, they had a very, very close relationship. He has called her literally, or he had called her liter- literally every day for the last 10 years and every week for the 20 years wow. before that. 
It was, we knew it was going to be really hard. Yeah. We knew it was going to be really hard when she passed away and she did pass away about two months ago. And, uh, when he was in the anger stage of grief, um, he ended up, he directed that anger at a lot of people, but also at me. And, um, Elle was very good at dealing with it. I was not as good at dealing with it because it was really hard not to take it personally. And, Mm -hmm. um, so I actually, reached out to her at some point and said, you know, I'm having a really hard time. I know he doesn't mean the things he's saying. I know it's just the anger and I'm trying to be as supportive as possible, but I'm having a really hard time. Do you have any advice? And so she and I spent a little time talking about sort of what her strategies were and um, how we could do that. And then of course I ended up talking to him about it as well. It's not like I was doing anything behind his back, Um, but I thought that was something that she could give me a specific insight on because, you know, they've been married. They've been together since they were teenagers. They've been married over 30 years. And I thought, you know, she might have some insight that I do not have. Right. Beautiful. Thank you for that example. That's really lovely. I love that you were asking her, like, how do I navigate our shared partner here? How do I deal with um, with handling him as opposed to that you're being upset with something she did. So I like that example. Oh, yeah. She's um, another. I can't, yeah. I can't think of anything she's actually done that I was upset with because <laughs> she's amazing. Oh, that's great. It sounds like you picked well this time. <laughs> Indeed. Which brings me to my next question. Um, you said in your first relationship you realized that you wanted different different kinds of or different types of poly. So can you talk a little bit about that? What do you mean by different types of poly and what type of poly are you doing now versus what you were doing before that didn't work? So it's not that it didn't work. It just didn't work for the individuals involved in the relationship. And this Mm -hmm. was all before Tristan Terramino came out with her amazing book on non-monogamy, Opening Up. And it's funny, we read Mm -hmm. Opening Up when it came out And one of the things she does in the book is to go through uh, five or six different models of polyamory. Like, it's all customized, of course, but she goes through, you know, here are five or six different ways that people can structure poly relationships, just to give you a few examples. And, you know, we both, he and I both read the book at that point and said, oh, see, this is what we needed beforehand, (laughs) because what Mm -hmm. his wife wanted and wasn't clearly conveyed was she wanted what Tristan Termino calls partnered non-monogamy, where you have a couple at the base and the couple lives together and they are married and they have other partners, but there is no question of living together, of co-parenting, of mingled finances. They can be long-term loving, committed relationships, but the couple, the original couple really stays at the center and that part is not disturbed. Mm -hmm. And, while if that had been made clear at the beginning, well, we still wouldn't have known because we were all new to this type of poly and we all had to figure out what it was that we wanted. It's just that mm-hmm. after a couple of years together, he and I wanted to do a commitment ceremony. We felt really committed and we wanted to talk about at least maybe living in the same city because I was living in Chicago and he was in Madison, Wisconsin. So we were literally driving you know, multiple hours every weekend to see each other. And mm-hmm. we thought maybe, you know, this is, you know, let's just talk about not living in the same house, but maybe the same city. And that's when it, it came out that she really was not open to that at all. And on my part, too, I realized that I 
you know, I'm really most comfortable when I have, uh, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a little older, a little bit of an old bogey. I'm like a little bit more settled. So I want to have like, you know, I'm good with like one or two, um, one or two sort of main partners, sort of anchor partners. And then I might have at that time, like a play partner or a kink partner. That's like a good friend. And we occasionally seen together that we generally didn't actually have sex, but it was still like an intimate friendship and a kink relationship. And he was actually becoming an incredibly popular rope top doing shibari, Japanese rope bondage. And so there was a point when, you know, he would literally have five five to seven new partners every week. And I'm the Mm -hmm. kind of person I discovered in our exploration that I really need to have the lines of communication open with my metamors. So mm-hmm. I needed to have not just time with him, but I need to be able to, to talk to his wife and to have a little time with her. And when he dates somebody new, I want to meet that person, even if it's over Skype, because a lot of them were long distance. But I need to take the time to meet that person, you know, in person is even better, like just a quick lunch, just so I kind of am in their physical presence and I kind of get a general idea of who they are. It really helped with um, tamping down my insecurities and jealousies. If we could just do lunch, I was fine. <laughs> But what Mm -hmm. that meant for me was that because he would have six or seven partners that he cycled out and because I needed to um, spend some time with them and communicate with them, that I was literally Skyping and communicating and meeting his partners every single night of the week to the exclusion of my (laughs) own dating. Like I literally had no time to date because I needed, I had this need to meet you know, his partners. And that was the only way that I could really be happy and healthy in my poly relationship. And there was nothing mm-hmm. wrong with the way he wanted to do poly. And there was nothing wrong with the way his wife or I wanted to do it. It's just that our, our, the models of the, of non-monogamy that were ideal and led to the happiest and healthiest versions of each one of us were completely different, unfortunately. Right. Yes, I get that, and I've been through that myself where I've had to learn through the school of hard knocks which forms didn't work for me, and I feel blessed now that my partner and I were very very matched, but we're also growing together. We're both growing after 10 years um, and Mm -hmm. kind of doing things differently and making space for each other to change as well. So that just comes with a lot of practice and maturity, I think. (laughs) So, okay, well, thank you for sharing your story with us. And um, I noticed that both of your relationships that you talked about, that you are with a man who's married to someone else, Um, I'm assuming that wasn't intentional for you. It just kind of turned out that way. You're not intentionally choosing to be like a secondary, are you? (laughs) Well, first of all, I don't do hierarchies. Um, So, okay. it, uh, I'm sure there's probably something, there's some psychological explanation for the fact that that I just happened to end up that way. <laughs> um, uh-huh. it, it wasn't intentional. In fact, after my first long-term poly relationship ended, I did, um, I did date poly amorously for a while. And then after about a year of that, I decided that I was only going to date um, men, because I was mostly interested in men, who were single or who had no other partners simply because I felt that I had been, I'd got a lot of mistreatment from poly couples. Um, I had poly couples that really did feel very strongly and worked really hard to make me feel secondary. And I'm like, look, I don't have to move in. I don't have to be number one. 
but I am a human being with feelings and emotions and my needs are just as important and valid as yours. And, you know, those need, I need to be able to communicate those. I need to be able to get a yes, at least some of the time. And I need to not have rules placed upon me um, that are designed to protect the original couple at the expense of my own agency. So I had, mm-hmm. a, you know, so many bad poly dating experiences. But I did date um, single people for a while. And I even dated a monogamous guy that actually, <laughs> I, you know, we did date for nine months. I wasn't seeing anybody else. I disclosed I was poly and said, you know, I, I do identify as poly. I'm not seeing anybody else. I'll tell you if I do. And we dated for, you know, nine months, which I thought was a pretty good track record. And then that didn't work out. Um, and, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a... I consider coincidence that I met Lusty Guy and that he happened to be Polly. It's kind of a funny story if you want to hear it, but uh, who knows? I, I know, to answer your question, no, I was not specifically targeting only married Polly men. I was just trying to find um, <laughs> someone that would give me uh, the type of relationship that I wanted. Right. I understand. Okay. Um, so what do you, other than kind of finding the right type of polyamory, um, what else do you wish you'd known about Polly before you started? I <laughs> so the the book the first book that I wrote is called Eight Things I Wish I'd Known About Polyamory Before I Tried It and Fracked It Up. <laughs> and I'm not going to list ah. all eight things mostly because I can generally only remember like three or four of them at any given time. <laughs> um, but the most important thing uh, there's so many. Uh, one of the things that is very important that it took me a while to realize is that I will change. The people in our relationships will change and the relationships themselves will change. I think that couples, people who come to polyamory through a couple work really hard to try and keep the existing couple the same without realizing that it's kind of like having a kid, like your, your relationship and your life is going to change. And you really have to be able to embrace that. It's not that you don't get a say. It's not that things are beyond your control or, or, you know, your needs or wants aren't valid. But adding another living, breathing human being who has full autonomy and agency is going to change. And if you aren't able to embrace that, if you're not comfortable dealing with your own fears, then you're probably going to have a really hard time with polyamory. Um, The Mm -hmm. other thing that I think is really important uh, that I learned is that it's, it's really, it's not about the rules and what you should or shouldn't do. There's not a right way to do things. The only right way to do polyamory is the way that works for the people involved in the relationship. Um, When I was first poly, I kept looking for somebody who would tell me how to do poly because I didn't know. And the only book that was out at that time was The Ethical Slut, which was great um, about addressing the theory, but, you know, it didn't really help me address at that time the day-to-day, although the new edition is way awesome. Yay, go Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. (laughs) Um, But knowing that it was okay for me to need what I needed, it's okay for me to say, I need a little bit more time with my partner because I'm not happy or, um, you know, I need to, it's important to me to be able to think about potential futures together without being slapped down. Like it's important that I can Mm -hmm. at least think about 
maybe, you know, do we want to talk about living together? Do we want to talk about shared finances? Generally, the answer was no, but I need for that to be okay. I need to know um, that there aren't going to be rules made against me that I don't have a say in. I didn't know for a long time that, you know, it's okay for me to say, you know, look, that, that rule doesn't work for me. So that I, I know that if I have to submit to that rule, it won't make me happy. So we can either say goodbye or we can talk about, you know, let's have a meeting, all of us together, and talk about how we could change this rule. Mm-hmm. Right. I thought you just yeah, had to accept what everybody on... gave you, you know? <laughs> exactly. And you're tapping into something that I've been working through lately, which is noticing a, a deep, deep pattern that I've become more aware of, of um, trying to guess what my partner wants and and be that so that they won't abandon me. So I realize my abandonment issues caused me to not really be as in touch with what I truly want as I should be or would like to be. Um, and so now as I practice, uh, you know, my own sovereignty and not needing to be abandoned, I'm not worrying about abandonment so much. Um, I'm, I'm becoming so much more aware of what I actually want and able to speak that. So that's, it's a growth process I'm in the middle of right now. So I was reminded of that when you shared that. Oh, that's funny. I have I traditionally have abandonment issues too. Uh, over the course of being poly and having to address those over and over, they're much, much smaller now. They're still there, but it's very rare that mm-hmm. anybody runs up against them. Yeah, that's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what what made you decide to write? Your book is called Eight Things I Wish I'd Known About Polyamory Before I Tried It and Fracked It Up. <laughs> What brought you to write that? Well, you know, people had been asking for a book for a while. Um, I'm in my day job. I am a marketer. And so I basically write all day. And I never actually really liked writing that much. And I ended up with this job where I'm basically writing things all day. Um, But what I discovered was uh, I was asked uh, for a conference to teach a Poly 101 class. And I said, I don't want to teach Poly 101. But here, here, what I can do is tell you about these are the things I learned from my first poly relationship. Like these are the things that I messed up and here's what I learned from it. And so it actually started as a class. And as I, the, the first time I gave the class, it was crazy. It was standing room only. Like literally the room was packed and there were like a dozen people standing in the back. And as I continued to give that class at different events and uh, different centers over the years, um, I worked to improve the class. And then realized that, you know, the demand for the class was not going down. And a lot of people can't afford to travel to these conferences and pay for airfare and hotel and for the conference fee. And, you know, that's not really fair. Plus, while I do talk about almost everything that's in the book on the podcast, it's sort of spread out over time. Podcasting is a linear format. Not everybody's an, an auditory learner. So I realized, look, if I just take this class and basically use the slides as my outline, because <laughs> I'm lazy, and then put it into book mm-hmm. format, then I will have an ebook that, you know, people can just download and they don't have to listen to 500 episodes or have to pay to go to a conference. So I, mm-hmm. I really took the lazy way out with that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. I'm sure that's very helpful. Do you still offer that on your website? Yes, absolutely. It's um, it's still available as an ebook, and uh, or you can just go to Amazon and search for you know eight things polyamory. You'll find it. I also do have a paperback version that you can also find on Amazon. So and you can get that through okay. an online search or through my website. 
Okay, great. Well, um, we'll talk a little bit more at the end about um, how to get a hold of you, just so our listeners know. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And we're speaking with Cunning Minx, who has a long-term podcast called Poly Weekly with over 500 episodes. And she's quite the expert. She's a speaker and an activist. And um, maybe you can tell us what are one or two of the most important lessons you've learned along the way? Ah, well, <laughs> in addition to the ones I just shared, um, I realized that the most important tool I had in my toolbox, and I've come to believe the most important tool in everybody's toolbox with any type of relationship is a very high level of Uh, Mm self-awareness. If you understand yourself and if you understand why you act the way that you do, if you can say, these are the, this is the way that I act in these situations. And here is why being able to communicate that both to yourself and to others, that level of self-knowledge is one of the most important tools in having any type of healthy relationship, whether that be monogamous, non-monogamous, or, or anything in between. And it's so funny because when I was back when I was monogamous, I had my first long-term monogamous partner, and we lived together. And I thought that I was a great communicator, and I thought that I knew myself really well. And it's so funny. I look back now and think, oh, you know, God bless me. I was trying so hard. But, you know, <laughs> over the years, I, I came to understand so much more about myself. Um, through just through life, but and additionally, polyamory will really um, will really sort of shine a light on those aspects of yourself that may remain hidden in a single relationship. One of the things I like right. to point out is that one of my our most popular episodes, believe it or not, in addition to when we do an episode on threesomes, is uh, our episodes on introverts, because mm-hmm. in a poly relationship you may have partners or metamors that are either way more introverted or way more extroverted than you are. So your communication styles and your uh, disagreement styles and your argument styles and your makeup styles may vary vastly. And you or they may be sending you some type of cue <laughs> that, that, that you may read as I'm angry or whatever, that the other, which, which is not what the other person intended. And knowing and being able to communicate, you know, this is how I argue. This is how I ask for sex. This is how I like to flirt. Um, this is, you know, the one thing you can never say to me or we are completely done. This is how I deal with my family and here is why. Uh, you know, knowing all those things about yourself and being able to either put them on paper and or communicate them to a partner is incredibly valuable. And it's one of the reasons why I, one of my favorite courses to teach is writing your own user manual uh, because I've been promoting the idea of writing your own user manual about, about you know, how you optimize performance and interaction with me, with Minx. <laughs> it's, it's not a dating profile. It's specifically about here's my family background and here's the influence that had, has on my current behavior. Here's what you need to know about my history, my emotional state, um, sex, relationships, everything. And I find it's an incredibly useful tool for those who take the time to sit down and write it. Wow, it sounds like it, yeah. And it seems like it could be help. That kind of self awareness could also be helpful in um, new dating as well when you're out there trying to do poly dating. <laughs> that is true, actually. Funny story, true story. So 
I don't generally encourage people to put their user manuals online unless it's a private link. Um, however, I put mine online because I wanted to show people what it looked like and show that it's not really that hard to write. I did it in bullet point, so it's not like writing a novel. It's just writing a, a couple of paragraphs in bullet points. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I first met Lusty Guy, I actually, um, he was performing a one-man show on stage, and I thought he was super cute. He was just my physical type, and he was on stage telling stories, and I thought, you know, what a great storyteller, and all I'm really looking for is somebody who could keep me entertained. <laughs> so uh, I actually I actually uh, hit on him on Facebook. I, I found him on Facebook and uh, sent him uh, an introduction message. Actually, I, I did see on Facebook that he was married. And so instead of asking him out, I said, well, you know, I saw your show. Um, I loved it because actors love hearing about how your show, their show changed you. And I said, right. uh, you know, I see that you're married. Um, so normally I was going to hit on you, but I won't hit on you because I see that you're married. So just go home and tell your wife that, you know, hot girl still, you still got it. Hot girls think you're awesome. And he messaged me back and said, <laughs> Well, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called polyamory, but my wife and I have been poly for 30 years. And I'm like, dude, you didn't even look at my Facebook profile, did you? Um, But what's funny is that he made up for that on our first date because he did Google me, Cunning Minx, and he did find my user manual and read every single bit of it. It showed up on our first date wearing a kilt, because in my How to Flirt With Me section, I say, wear a kilt and a poofy shirt. Quote my favorite movie, The Princess Bride. These are ways, these are great ways to flirt with me. And he did. And I'm like, oh, what a coincidence. He wore a kilt. Oh, wait. Oh, hold on. I was like, oh, my God. Did you, did you find my user manual? That's adorable. <laughs> and he said, yes, and I have some questions. <laughs> so your while user I don't, manual. yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't usually recommend that people put their user manual online. Some people actually do write it and then link to it from their FetLife or OkCupid dating profile to avoid, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the bad dating situations. But I have to say it did work out great for me because I Mm -hmm. love a man who follows instructions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Now, aren't you or did you just write a book about dating? I did. Actually, he and I wrote it together. It's also based on one of our most popular classes. Um, it's called, we, we actually have a series of classes on poly dating and, and dating 101. And this one in particular is about optimizing your online dating profile, like FetLife or OkCupid is really what we focused on. But, you know, there's some, some key aspects to, to really making sure your profile is ideal and all it can be. And we entitled it, no dick pics, <laughs> your guide to creating an irresistible online dating profile. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it, it's really all of the tips and tricks. We're both actors, and we give advice on how to take a great profile picture. We're both marketers. We give tips on how to easily market yourself and how to write that dreaded self-summary because people hate writing those. And we actually have a template and kind of walk you through it. So, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. that was our latest. Beautiful. That's great. Uh, and you said um, that you kind of come from the angle of pansexuality and kink. So can you talk about how does open relationship um, blend with those subjects? Yeah. Well, from the beginning, it was really important to me to be inclusive. Um, I know that a lot of the coverage in the press of polyamory is of cisgendered, heterosexual, um, and, and white 
men and women, uh, usually starting from the point of a couple. And while that certainly does happen and is common, it's not the only way to look at things. So I wanted to make sure, and I've been working on this harder and harder in recent years, um, to make sure that people of color have a voice on the podcast. There are tons of people who are black and poly and write things like the black and poly blog, but you never see that in the coverage and you don't see that in a lot of the books. And I want to make sure that people of color know that, yes, this is not just a white people thing. It's something that, you know, people of all different, you know, races do. Um, now, I came to polyamory through kink. I was basically kinky first. I discovered uh, BDSM with my first poly guy, and I was really just interested in being with him. But when we started doing uh, kink together, I realized that that was an important part of who I was and that I didn't want it to just be with him. I wanted to educate myself and find a community. I was in Chicago at the time, so I actually, you know, just searched meetups and uh, was there face? I don't think there was Facebook at that time. No, there wasn't. And so I searched and found like some local meetup groups where people talked about, you know, just munches where people were just out in public at a public space, just drinking coffee and eating sandwiches and talking about um, kinky topics. Um, frankly, most of the time they ended up talking a lot about Radio Shack and, and there were a lot of engineers in there. Um, <laughs> but I, I found that community, and it's true that there's a lot of crossover between the poly and kink communities, probably because people who are in the BDSM community tend to have very specific fetishes and kinks. And, you know, it's it's not unusual that maybe if you have a life partner already, that that person might not be into 100% of the things that you're into. So it's not uncommon for even somebody who would normally be sort of monogamous um, to be what I call polykinkerous, where maybe you go and play with other people because your partner isn't into spanking or furries or adult babies or whatever it is that you're into. And so you can go do that. And of course, that's a whole separate type of negotiation. So there's a lot of crossover with the kink community. Um, also, you didn't mention it, but a lot of crossover with the science fiction community as well. A lot of science fiction geeks have read Heinlein and, and have looked at alternative realities and fantasies and didn't necessarily consider them all to be monogamous. Right. Oh, that's interesting. And what about pansexuality? Can you describe that for people that may not have heard that term before? I, oh gosh, I need to look up the actual definition of pansexuality. Basically, I used that, I used that term to mean covering all types of sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and nowadays we say, you know, GLBTIQ, a, to include, you know, most of the different types of sexuality. I was lazy, again, and used the word pansexual to basically as a blanket term to include people of all different types of sexuality. We've done podcasts on um, asexuals, people who are asexual and aromantic. Um, we've done lesbians and bisexual. I've had trans people on. Um, you know, I just wanted to make sure that everyone felt that they were represented and that this is not something that simply, you know, straight, white, married, cis people do. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. So about 20 years ago, I went to a polyamory conference and we were having lunch at a large table with about eight to 10 people at the table. And a woman said, let's go around the table and share about how we do polyamory. And I was so struck by how each and every person did it so uniquely by what they wanted and how, you know, they kind of designed their own way of doing open relationship and each one was unique, uh, that there was no one template that everyone follows. So when I'm 
as I'm doing my radio show here, I'm, I love talking with people because each and every person has their own unique way of doing it, and I'll never run out of things to talk about mm-hmm. because everybody's <laughs> unique. So my question for you is I looked um, through your topics of your Poly Weekly podcast, and I'm wondering, since it's kind of more topic-driven, if you're running out of topics. Never. I will stop podcasting when I run out of topics. <laughs> this is not an issue. <laughs> Yeah, as long what as I keep saying, as long get? as people keep. Go ahead. Go ahead. And no, go ahead. I I always say that as long as people keep writing in and asking questions, I will keep answering them. When people stop writing in mm-hmm. with questions, then I will happily hang up my microphone and get my nights and weekends back. <laughs> but um, I see. So it, you often um, base your topics on questions people are asking you. Yes. And I do choose them carefully, though, because if it's a question that I think other people have, then I might make it a topic for the show. If it's something that has been asked and answered a million times, sometimes I don't. I'll just send them a link to uh, one of my FAQs and and give them a couple of shows to listen to. Um, But I find that people's situations and the way they approach them are very different. Um, Also, lately, frankly, I've been working on promoting other types of sex-positive educators as well. And sort of everybody has is a different type of educator, a different type of activist. And I want to make sure that my audience knows about those options, that it's not just my point of view and Lusty Guys and Co's and Kevin's, those are my other co-hosts' points of views, but that, you know, they have access to an entire world of other specialists that, you know, delve into topics that I may only touch on lightly. And, of course, there's always another book out about polyamory or non-monogamy. I love bringing on book authors to talk about that. Um, You know, I love helping out other podcasters. And, you know, really, I consider Poly Weekly, after the first few years, I'm like, look, I don't have any more wisdom. Everything after the first two years is pretty much repeated. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. what I do have is a microphone and a way to showcase other people's experiences so that you know, other people can come on the show and say, this is how I do poly, or this is how I approach non-monogamy, or here's how I approach sex. And you know, this basically is relevant to everybody. I've had like Joan Price on to talk about senior sex because, hello, people over 70 do <laughs> do, do poly. <laughs> and um, I bring on Co. She's a millennial. Uh, they are millennial. Um, to talk about what the experience might be like for somebody who's in their mid-20s right now. That's very different from somebody like me who's in, you know, her mid-40s, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) And there's so, as you say, there's so many different ways to approach polyamory and sexuality and orientation and family and culture that I don't anticipate ever running out of topics. I may be doing this podcast when I'm 80. Who knows? (laughs) Right, and the topic is evolving. It's becoming more acceptable in our culture and more known about, and as more and more people practice it, it it will just widen, and there'll just be more and more things to talk about, I think. Absolutely. When I first started podcasting in the early or mid-2000s, the only articles written on polyamory were those... um, Expo like the scandalous exposés of like the sex club maybe next door and do you know what your neighbors are doing at night 
And it was all this like weird, freaky, undercover stuff. It was super scandalous. And nowadays, I mean, I can't even keep track of all the essays all around the world, in The Guardian, the UK, in Australia, in the US, everywhere, of like, oh, here's a here's a poly family and here's how they work it. And it's a personal essay without any judgment imposed over it. It's like kind of just a thing that people do now. Right. So you mentioned earlier that your most popular um, podcast is when you talk about threesomes. Why do you think that is? Um, sex. <laughs> <laughs> people like to voyeur uh, on the, that? Yeah, um, people love hearing gals talk about sex. And we used to actually talk about sex a lot more on the podcast Um, these days I'm really focusing a lot more on communication skills. But that being said, in order to have a good threesome, you need to have really good communication skills. It's not just a lot of Mm -hmm. alcohol. In fact, I would probably opt against that. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, um, you know, who doesn't love a good threesome? (laughs) Who doesn't love talking about sex (laughs) with multiple people? Um, You know, and it's it's a very relevant and important aspect of polyamory. Absolutely. Have you had an episode about sex with more than three, like orgies or anything like that? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think we've had an orgy-specific podcast. Ooh, maybe I should bring Franklin on. I know that he um, had a very intellectual debate a while back about how many people does it take to make an orgy. Is threesome, foursome, Uh, more than five? Very scientific approach. (laughs) (laughs) I should bring him back on to talk about that. Okay, there you go. We'll do an orgy cast. There you go. I'll look forward to that. (laughs) So what do you wish people understood more about polyamory? I wish there's so much. I do wish people understood that uh, it's not all about the sex, although sex is just as important in a poly relationship as it is in any other type of relationship. It's an important way of building intimacy and self-expression, and people use it for many other things as well. I wish people understood that just because other people are poly doesn't mean that monogamy is a less valid option um, or that we are somehow, the folks who are poly are somehow attacking monogamy. And the fact that we chose something different or we feel that we are something different somehow means that your, your, your lifestyle is less valid. Most of us are mm-hmm. totally fine with monogamy. I mean, not for us, clearly, but, you know, if it works for you, I would never criticize, you know, anyone for opting to be monogamous as long as it was an active choice and something they they love doing and, and works for them. And also, no, just because I'm poly doesn't mean I'm out to sleep with your husband. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes, I've heard I don't so get a many toaster. people say that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard so many people say that as soon as they came out to a friend that they were polyamorous, the friend would never let their husband be around them again. It's very common for them yeah. to feel suddenly threatened. Even if, if even if they've known that person for years, once they know yeah. they're polyamorous, they suddenly can't have their husband anywhere near them. <laughs> yeah. And I guess if I could add one more so, thing to the list. Um, yes, of course. Um, jealousy is probably not going to be your biggest problem. The first thing that people always ask about is, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm too jealous. Or, you know, oh, how do you deal with jealousy? They, that's the first thing people mm-hmm. think of. And while jealousy right. is, you know, difficult for some people to handle, especially the first time, 
it's generally not the biggest issue that you run across. There are a lot of other um, communication issues and issues, issues with other types of conflict that and money and all kinds of things that end up being much larger issues than jealousy. Um, poly relationships don't explode over jealousy. Well, okay, sometimes they do, but generally that's not the tough issue you have to deal with. It tends to be an issue of, you know, communication generally, or simply a lifestyle that doesn't quite match as I found in my first poly relationship. Right. So let's talk about jealousy for a minute. We have a little bit more time. Um, that is the question that people often ask. And I know for me, I still feel jealous. Um, in our culture, there's kind of this belief that you should do everything you can to avoid feeling jealous. And it's just a feeling like anything else. And sometimes I feel jealous and it's okay. I'm not going to die. I just know that I need to have more than one lover. And so I can't ask my partner to not see anyone else. That wouldn't be fair. And so for me, I've never been someone who's free from jealousy, but I've learned how to dance with my jealousy and manage, you know, transform it into um, turn on or um, transform it into a deep self-awareness or go deep into my spiritual meditation practice around it. Um, So it's become my friend. So how Hmm. did you ever feel jealous and how have you dealt with that? Oh, all the time. In fact, the first time I started teaching jealousy workshops back in mm, 2006, I think, I would start off by saying the reason I'm qualified to teach this jealousy workshop is because I get jealous all the time. Now, that's definitely (laughs) much less true these days. And um, I agree absolutely with what you said, Sumati, is that jealousy is an emotion like any other. Um, To me, it's no more powerful than um, anger or sadness or fear unless you let it be. But I also agree with what you said, that in our society, you know, we teach people how to deal with anger. We teach people how to deal with grief and sadness. We teach people how to deal with fear. But jealousy, oh, my God, that's insurmountable. Oh, no, couldn't possibly. And I'm like, really, dude? It's just, it's just an emotion. You can learn to deal with it. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, mm-hmm. we have, uh, Lusty Guy and I have a shortcut uh, method <laughs> that we recommend for people. And uh, if you want more detail on this, it's on our the FAQ section of our site, written out in a little mm-hmm. bit more detail. But we have the 3D method, discuss, distract, do. So this is mm. generally for the situation. It can be any situation when you feel insecure or have a fear or some type of jealousy. The sample situation we use a lot is if your partner is out on a date and therefore you're feeling you know, fear or insecure or jealous. So the first thing is discuss. Discuss with your partner beforehand the things that are making you anxious. Uh, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm worried you're going to like her more than me. I'm worried that I'm going to feel like a chump. I'm worried that, uh, you know, whatever it is, actually talk about that worry and that fear with your partner without the expectation that the date will be canceled. But just vent that, that fear, that insecurity, and that jealousy. And this gives yourself the chance to do some self-care, and it gives your partner a chance to do a little bit of uh, affirmation as well. That's the first T, D, discuss. And the second is distract. Your partner being out and doing something else is a wonderful opportunity for you to do some self-care. So what is a treat for you while your partner's off doing something else? Maybe it's a bubble bath. Uh, For one of my metamors, it's staying home, making tacos, and playing World of Warcraft. Maybe it's going out (laughs) for a pedicure with your friends. Or maybe it's going to a movie that your partner would never want to see. 
Um, take that as an opportunity to distract yourself with something that is a special treat for you so you have a positive reinforcement for a time when your partner is out with somebody else or when, you know, that fear is surfacing. Now you associate that fear with something positive. And then the third D, that's discuss, distract, and the third D is do. So when your partner comes back or when the episode of fear, insecurity, or jealousy is over, then take time to reunite with your partner. So talk with your partner about um, how you felt before, during, and after. Um, Share as many details as is uh, appropriate for your situation. And then reconnect. We, We use the word do, which means basically do each other. Have sex. Uh, <laughs> Reconnect. Um, or um, uh, lusty guy in L. Call it. Um, yeah, I was just going to say I read that he calls it um, marking your territory, right? Exactly. That's what his wife calls it, marking her territory. Like he comes back from something, uh-huh. and she's like, "Okay," and you know they they have sex, and she's like, "Okay, good." And you know you can. <laughs> it's it's in a loving and joking way. It's not in a you know sort of possessive kind of way, but that's what works for them. Now it may not be sex for you. Maybe it's not do. Maybe it's just hug. Maybe it's cuddle. Maybe it's just a very sweet text message. You know whatever do means to you. But that's the idea is to reconnect with your partner. So discuss, distract, do. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. That's very practical advice. So we just have about five more minutes, and um, before we go into um, sharing how to get get a hold of you and what you're up to next, um, is there anything else you want to add, any final pearls of wisdom or um, things that you've learned from doing your podcast for so long? Oh, my goodness. Oh, there's so much. You know, I would like to go back to something you mentioned before when you said you went around the table and each person described how they did poly and you realize they were all really different. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do often say that poly is a custom job. Once you throw out a traditional relationship structure, then you get to construct the structure that works best for you and the other people involved and everybody gets a say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things I discovered from doing the podcast for so long is that I have a lot of monogamous friends and listeners that write in and that are, are kind enough to talk to me and, and expose their relationships to me. And I realized that it's not Polly. It's everybody. When you, if you interview a thousand different monogamous people, you're going to find that those, you have a thousand different relationship structures. Everybody mm-hmm. customizes their relationship a little bit differently. Now, sometimes it's conscious and mm-hmm. sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's driven by you know, religion or practicality or something else, but every relationship is different. We're all always constructing our relationships. It's just about whether we're actually communicating that out loud and with everybody involved or not. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that because I think monogamous people get into a relationship and one person may accuse the other of cheating because they looked at somebody longer than a second you know they they stared Mm -hmm. at a person that they're attracted to who walked into a restaurant longer than a glance and then they get in a big fight about it so but they've never talked about what the boundary is like how long do you hug somebody you hug them longer than a second so therefore you cheated (laughs) on me you know (laughs) what are those boundaries It's it's really good for monogamous people to talk about those as well yeah, I had a monogamous friend who um, discovered her husband's porn stash and considered that cheating and made him throw everything out. 
And mm-hmm. because to her, that was cheating. They'd never talked about it because they thought that they both knew what marriage and monogamy meant. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you come mm-hmm. from different backgrounds, which everybody does, if you haven't explicitly talked about it, you may not know. And it's going to be different for everybody. Exactly. Profound. Really great wisdom. Thank you so much. Okay, so we have a couple more minutes, and um, I'd like you to tell our listeners how, just really clearly, where they can find you, maybe spell out your website, and um, I think you have an offer for people as well, so please take the next couple minutes to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you are a podcast listener, you can find my podcast, Poly Weekly, by doing a keyword search for Polyamory Weekly wherever it is that you download and listen to your podcasts. Um, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, I think we're on most of the platforms out there. Uh, now, my website, which has a searchable archive of every single episode that we've done, complete with time codes for every single segment, is at polyweekly.com, P-O-L-Y weekly.com. And that also has how to contact me, all of the books and courses and FAQs. And we even have a, an Amazon bookstores where you can buy all the recommended books on polyamory that I did not write. And as a special offer for your listeners and special thank you for letting me come on the show and shoot my mouth off, one of my <laughs> most popular online courses is Kicking Polydrama on Its Ass where we took a 90-minute course that we teach at conferences and actually put it into an online course format uh, where we walk you through the typical things that cause drama in poly relationships and how to head off that drama at the pass so that things don't explode and escalate and then you're in this big, crazy poly mess. So that is, it's a 90-minute course with worksheets. There's a template for creating your own user manual. There's lots of extra goodies. We don't usually have time to get in our uh, live courses. And for a single person to take that course, it's usually $69. We're running a special for you folks for $49. And then we have a polytool offering where up to three people can take the course together, each with their own login. That's usually $129, and we're offering it to your listeners for $99. Fabulous. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you. Absolutely. Hey, the less polydrama there is in the world. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Cunning. I really appreciate you being on my show and sharing so much wisdom with us from all the years that you've been doing this work. Um, And I wish you all the best with your courses and your relationships and and everything else that you do moving forward. So thanks again so much for being on the show. To you as well. It's been a pleasure being here, Simity. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, bye.